0: We're speaking about our resurrection. As Paul does, I will read the entirety of chapter 15 and I will comment up to about verse 22 today and possibly finish it next week. If we can get the text up there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, starting with verse 1. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according, accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Amen. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than, them, than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And, if, and in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we have all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one, one man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his order, Christ, the fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself would also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do, you, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as it is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is of one kind, the glory of the earth is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, For stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before this text tonight, God, all 58 verses that speak. Of the historical reality of the resurrection of your son Jesus Christ, Father God, as Paul encourages this congregation that's been tossed to and fro by a teaching that it's impossible for the dead to be raised, Father God. But yet they believe, but they lack their deep understanding, Father. And I pray as 21st century Christians, God, you give us hope and you give us understanding into the factual base of the resurrection, Father God, of Christ and ours also, Lord God. This hope of glory, Christ in us. So, God, I ask you to breathe upon the text, the sermon, open up our minds to understand the scriptures, Father God, and just see how incredible our faith is in Jesus' name. our resurrection. We'll concentrate our study uh, today and probably next week on the resurrection with Paul's defense of it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And all that naturally flows from this most important, and I have to highlight important, of Christian doctrines. It is the, mo- it's the most fullest treatment in all the Bible of this subject. And though it seems awkward, and I, I have to be And I'll be honest, it seems awkward to understand at first. uh, Let me uh, uh, encourage you, it's quite easy to follow once we get into it and we understand and we take it apart and to see how it all uh, is relative to our life today. I don't know where you are today, but I can tell you the text that we just read It might confuse you, has everything to do with your life in one way or the other. It possesses such power, uh, and, and namely the power to give living hope. Anybody need hope? Do you need hope for yesterday? Think about that question. Is anybody hoping for anything from last year? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You're hoping you have dreams still. Yes. Hope. yes. But all your hope is for what—the past or the future? Hope has everything to do with the future. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we will be raised with Christ. That is the ultimate hope. Right. It's the ultimate hope. So everything we're reading out of this text for our future resurrection has to do with hope. It's everything we need as Christians in our life. It is the ultimate hope the Christian should rest his head on. Because all other hopes we just don't know about. But this one, we do know. We will be raised with Christ. He says over here, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? It's swallowed up in Christ. Death is the last enemy of man. The death here is not spoken about Christ's death. It's your death and my death. It's swallowed up in Christ. Christ defeated both the cause and effect. Sin is the cause. And we know that he who sins what? He who sins shall surely... All right. Very good. Do you know what text? All right. I won't ask you that. Okay. But Christ has conquered both the sin and the consequences. He's, he's conquered sin at the cross and he's conquered the consequences of sin at the resurrection. He has conquered both the physical and the spiritual consequences of sin. But for us, he's done it in reverse order. We receive first a spiritual resurrection and then we receive a physical resurrection. And we can have a growing, settled heart in this matter about the future and about our resurrection. The world approaches death its own way. Some people don't really care about death. You're young enough. You don't really don't feel the sting of immortality yet, of immortality, I say. You know, it's, it's still something in the future. But one day we all turn the corner and the reality of mortality is real it's real. You you see it in the mirror, you feel it in your knees, you see it in life, and one day you're awakened to something you'd rather not know of. The reality of one day you're going to die. You see, the scriptures don't hide from that. It, It takes it head on. The world approaches death with a nervous laughter, a sort of they laugh it off, they joke it off, they huck it up, they do everything they can to get away from the awkward feeling that they're going to die. I listen to people when they talk about it and they just they push it to the, uh, the peripheral, to, they marginalize, they push it to the side and they, they just try to keep their focus on this world. But it, it's short lived. Not the Christian. The Christian approaches the reality of death armed. With the resurrection. As long as I preach and pastor and teach, I will drive this point home into everybody who's willing to listen. Because one day the reality of mortality is going to grip your soul and you're going to be armed with the power of the doctrine of the resurrection. You're going to be able to look at it and say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's been swallowed up in Christ. This teaching should not be neglected. It's a feast for the Christian's heart, the Christian's mind. It's something no cult, no religion, no philosophy can give. It has no answer for death. Only Christ has an answer for death, period. That's it. Today, the people don't even say someone's died. They say they've, even better, they say they've passed on, on where? can't you call it what it is you can't come to grips it's final it's final it's over they can't do it they try to downplay it romanticize it they passed over they passed on they just cannot come to the conclusion that someone is dead At the center of all that we call our Christian faith is this doctrine. Without it, we're worse off, Paul says, than the unbeliever. And we we should be most pitied of all men. In it, we have the understanding of our new bodies, our motives for right conduct, the power to stand strong and serve Christ. Uh, For this reason, we will teach, we will preach and proclaim the resurrection unashamed. The Apostle Paul wanted the Corinthians to notice and live under its power. And so does every Christian for 2,000 years should be living under the power of the resurrection. It should not be a song. It should not be a creed, though it's okay to have a creed, have a song. It should be alive in our hearts. The reality of the resurrection. But why does Paul write on the subject anyway? And that's important for an understanding of the whole text. Verse 12 is very uh, insightful. It says, Paul asks a question that he's, uh, he's heard. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, and I'll paraphrase, now if Christ has been proclaimed amongst you by someone as not being raised from the dead... How can some say there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, now if Christ is proclaimed as being raised from the dead, how come there's some people in your church, in this Greek culture, in this world you live in, say there is no resurrection of the dead? That's what gets Paul to write all these 58 verses of scripture on the resurrection of the dead. And I want you to follow along as we go through, because it's more logical and reasonable than you think. There's a reason why. The resurrection spoken about here is not Jesus Christ. Did you know that? It was the Corinthians. That's yours or mine. And the reason was because in the Greek culture was saturated with a philosophy called soul immortality. New ages speak on soul immortality today. Some of the ancient religions, some of those uh, far eastern religions will speak about some s- sense of soul immortality where when you pass on, you go to the great conscience of the sky and so on and so forth. You become part with the universe, the universal conscience. A lot of New Age gurus teach that. But it was saturated with soul immortality. And what this teaches, that the Greeks taught 2,000 years ago, is that the, 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 body, the soul is housed in the body. It's a dualistic teaching. It wasn't body and soul together. It was a body and a soul. But the body they taught was evil. That's where all the lust is and the passion is and the greed and the anger and all the vices we like. That was because of the flesh, the body, the materialistic body. That's what harbored sin. But the soul was free. The soul was pure. And upon death... The soul was what? Released from this prison house of the wicked body. That's what they taught 2,000 years ago. In this Greek culture where this church was. So that kind of influence came upon the people. And they said, a resurrection? Who wants a resurrection? I want to get out of this body. I can't wait to be liberated from this body. I want to be liberated from my sin and my vices. I want to, I want to be free. And they don't realize the beauty of creation in God's image. We are body and soul. We can distinguish between a soul and a body, but you never separate it. The scriptures never separate it. So it was easy for this church to hear something like a resurrection. Come on, put your mind to it. A real resurrection? It's impossible. And what happened? People started believing that. And Paul writes these 58 verses to combat that kind of thought. There's always something in the culture trying to make its way into Christianity to pull it apart and tear it down. Uh, in this case, in this, in, in this particular point, it's this soul immortality. It's still around. You listen to a, new, a lot of New Age stuff, and, and you'll see this come around. It circles around. You get a revival every once in a while. But let's go to our text. I want to break down the chapter as this. The chapter is divided. Verses 1 to 5 is the resurrection preached. Verses 6 to 11 is the resurrection witnessed. Verses 12 to 19 is resurrection reasoning, and I'll spend most of my time on that today. Verses 20 and 28 is resurrection power. In uh, in it, God reverses Adam's mess. Verses 29 and 34 is resurrection ethics. Do not go on sinning, Paul says. And verses 35 to 49 is resurrection anatomy, about the seed. That's the DNA behind the resurrection. Verses 50 to 57 is resurrection victory. Resurrection is the last word in this universe. And last but not least is verse 58, and that's resurrection motivation. I will start in verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read them again. If we can put them up there. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as a first of points what I also received, that Christ died for our sins accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. This is what I like to call... Resurrection preached. Our salvation as the, the salvation of this church 2,000 years ago is rooted in both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are not just saved by his death for our sins. If we believe in our heart that God rose him from the dead, we shall be saved. We need to grow in both the knowledge of his death in the knowledge of his resurrection. And there's something here, as Paul says, in accordance with what? Accordance with the scriptures. Our faith is rooted deep in the Hebrew body. In the, in the Hebrew Bible, I meant. That's our faith in the resurrection is Deeply rooted in scripture. It's not a fantasy, it's not a fairy tale. When we speak about the resurrection, it's not some kind of concoction that some 12 disciples made 2,000 years ago because they had to do something with this Jesus body. It's deeply rooted in the Old Testament text. Our faith has deep roots. What you believe and what I believe in today, what we sing about, what we hope about, what encourages us on a daily basis is deeply rooted. In the Hebrew Bible, it's not some kind of new teaching that just came out of nowhere. God prepared the world through the Hebrew scriptures, through the Hebrew nation, to be prepared for a crucifixion and a subsequent resurrection. That's what Paul preached. That's what the apostles preached. That was the body of their preaching. If you believe and stand in what you received. You will be saved. This is what Paul preached. He didn't preach just about a love Jesus type of thing. He truly preached about a crucifixion and a resurrection. It's deeply rooted in the Hebrew Bible. Verses 6 to 11 bring us into something else. It's, it's, it's the witness. I call it resurrection witness. Let's read this 6 to 11, 5 to 11. And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother, half-brother, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, that's Paul, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. Resurrection witness. I love this point. I love this point. Paul depends greatly on the historical aspect of Christianity. He doesn't spiritualize Jesus and his death or his His resurrection body Christian history can stand on its own we don't have to try to convince somebody you have to believe this history teaches it and Paul was not ashamed when he was defending the resurrection to call into account eyewitnesses these, these people in Corinth that believed the message of salvation and resurrection never saw Christ did you? Right, don't answer that. I see one hand go up. John will speak to you later on. Now, right? But here's the point. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who believe and do not. And do not say. See. see, the principle is the same. Is it easy to believe in a resurrection if it only happened 20 years ago? But it's harder to believe in a resurrection if it happened 2,000 years ago? Not at all. But Paul is using an eyewitness account that happened 20 years earlier that saw the resurrected Christ, and that was at 40 days after the, uh, the resurrection, before the ascension, that he appeared to all these people for 40 days, going in and out amongst them, revealing himself to certain people. And Paul calls upon this as a fact of the Christian faith to settle the hearts of these people that the resurrection is real. And I'm sure it had the same effect on them, and it has on us today, and has on me personally. I believe it. I believe Paul saw Christ. I believe Cephas saw Christ. I believe that Christ revealed himself to 500 people all at one time. I believe that unequivocally. You couldn't beat that out of my mind. And because I was not there, just like they weren't there, makes no difference. I know it's real. Historical, 2,000 years or 20 years removed makes no difference. The principle is the same. I love that Paul depends greatly on the historical aspect of Christianity. Verses 12 to 19 is called resurrection reasoning. And I'm going to spend a little time in here today. Resurrection reasoning. So as I'm reading this text, look at the reasoning. All right. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Listen to the train of thought. There's a trajectory going on here. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And if my preaching is vain, your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ when he did not raise him, if it's true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised your faith is futile and listen to this you're still in your sins Then those who fall, have fallen asleep in Christ have perished and, if, and in Christ we have hope in this life only we are to be pitied of most people resurrection reasoning if this doctrine is not true And there's a lot of trouble. You might as well leave right now. If you don't believe this, leave. Eat and drink. For tomorrow you die. If this is not true. This section spells out clearly the natural breakdown of the whole Christian faith. If the dead are not raised. Starting at verse 12, Paul begins to unravel a mess. We would be in. If Christ was not raised, if there's no resurrection, we are in trouble and we should be pitied. Verse 12 says, now if Christ's priest is raised from the dead, how can it be that some say there's no resurrection of the dead? Understand something. Everywhere a true apostle went, you can rest assured the teaching of the resurrection was sure to follow. An apostle went nowhere. Read the book of Acts. They speak more about the resurrection than they do about the crucifixion in the book of Acts. They preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every true apostle, every true minister of the gospel has to be engaged in pointing men to the resurrection. It was a major component of their preaching and always has and it always will be. All great preaching, faithful, and I call great preaching faithful to the truth, Over 2,000 years have always rested upon the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All Christian preaching should have this element in it. We live, we witness, and we preach the living, risen Christ just as I saw him this morning. Every time we preach, every time we teach, every time we lead worship, every time you speak to somebody about God, it's as if we are speaking as we saw him on that morning. That's how real it is. This is not make-believe. Resurrection reasoning. Listen to verse 13 and 14. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Your faith is in vain. A man's faith is only as good as the message, what? He believes it. Uh, Faith is useless. I know a lot of people have faith. They have faith in trees and rocks and the moon and the stars and uh, uh, tea leaves. And they believe in all sorts of stuff. They have faith. They have That's real to them. But the object of their faith is useless. It's futile. It's make-believe. What makes faith real and tangible and alive is the object of... Of our faith, the message we believe. So, if Christ has not been raised and we're believing it, then we should be pitied. No matter how sincerely we live, it is in vain. It's worthless if it's not true. All our prayers, all our prayers, our tears, our giving, our encouragement, our labor and love over the years is useless. To tell me I love you brother Brian is useless. For what? Because we're both going to perish? Pray for me? Why? Because we're both going to perish? Help me. God bless you. Why? If we're going to perish. But he's not finished. Verse 15. He goes on to say, We would even be found... To be misrepresenting God. Because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Listen to this. To Paul, the thought of preaching anything contrary to the truth of God was blasphemous. Think about that. Listen to Paul. If the dead are not raised, that means I've misrepresented God. Would not this world be a much better place if everybody was conscious of maybe misrep- misrepresenting God? We should all be fearful to ever put words in God's mouth, to misrepresent God at any time in our life. For Paul, that was blasphemous. Because of the fact that they might be misrepresenting God. When you misrep- misrepresent God, guess what else you do? Think of the equation. I stand before you today, a congregation. If I am misrepresenting God, what am I doing to you? I'm misleading you. I'm deceiving you. The blind, the leading, the blind, the both are falling into the pit. To misrepresent God is to mislead humanity. And people are doing it like it's nothing. They don't think twice about it. They, they say whatever they want to say and say it's in the name of God. Not really they have to stand before God. For Paul, this represents being a false apostle or a false teacher. For Paul, this was a horrible conclusion. And for him personally, it was the worst of all. It was worse than being pitied in all men, the thought of misrepresenting God and misleading people. It it really is good advice for anybody who seeks to pick up the Bible and preach and teach. We're very careful who we allow to teach and preach. Very careful. People have to have a deep faith and a deep commitment to the Word of God if you're going to try to represent God. He goes on to say in 16 and 17, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. This verse goes to validate what happened on Good Friday. I don't want you to miss this. i want to read verses 16 and 17 again, and I want you to think about it. The resurrection validates Good Friday. For if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But Christ paid for our sins where? So what are you saying, Paul? If he's saying if Christ is not raised, that means I'm still in my sins, but Christ died on my sins for on Friday. Double-edged sword. Here's how it works. The power to save... Lies in the crucifixion. It's the power to save. But the power to preach lies in the lies in the resurrection. The apostles, when they went out and preached think about what happened when you read the gospels on the night he was crucified. Did they go around preaching or did they all sheepishly go back home? Was there power there? To preach? Were their sins atoned for on Friday? But there was no power. It's when they saw him and he commissioned them and filled them with the Spirit of God is when they went crazy and they went back into the same mob that crucified them and they preached Christ raised from the dead. The power to save lies in the crucifixion. The power to preach lies in the resurrection. The power to live the Christian life lies in where? The resurrection. For if you have been baptized into his death through baptism, if you have died with Christ in the waters of baptism with him, you will rise with him also to the glory of God. Paul teaches us in Romans 6, and that's to live for him. We live in the power of the resurrection. The power to preach salvation lies in the resurrection. It drove men throughout the world, men who were cowards only days before, went out and preached because the power that's intrinsically found in the resurrection. And all good preaching today over 2,000 years has to have this dynamic to it. Men need to know that the resurrection is generally real. The resurrection is God's own witness that sin is truly atoned for and forgiven. Without it, all we have is a bloody mess and a dead body, period, and no hope. Hope comes at the resurrection. Verse 18 and 19, And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They've perished in their sins and without hope in this life or the next. For in this life only we have hope in Christ. We of all men must be pitied, Paul says. So real is this to Paul that if it's not true, then the only conclusion that we are to have, we're pathetic. We are, Look around you. I know we look like a pathetic crew. I know that. Everybody's falling asleep from their Easter dinners and lunches. I see that. I'm taking notes. If the resurrection is not real, we are a group of pathetic, belly full on Easter We might as well go to Easter bunnies. (laughs) We're pathetic. If the resurrection isn't real, Paul says we should be pitied. The world should look at us and feel sorry for us. They should have mercy on us and sympathy and empathy for us because we're pathetic little people going around believing in a resurrection. That means that after all the apostles and Christians have suffered in this world for 2,000 years and their witness and their life for Christ is vain and they're fools. Absolutely foolish. But he goes on to say, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. Enough with this nonsense, is what he's saying. Enough with this rationale. Enough with this reasoning. No, the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead. And not just that, he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, that's Adam. And by man has come the resurrection of the dead, that's Christ. And we need to highlight what he's talking about. The first fruits in the Old Testament points to the reality of the coming harvest If Christ is the first fruits, please tell me, think theologically, tell me you're learning something. Who is the harvest? Go for it. I know people are scared to give an answer, they don't want to look like fools. Yes, we are. We're the harvest. If Christ is the first fruits and raised from the dead, you can guarantee you too will be raised from the dead. That's why we can say the face of death, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The older you'll get, you'll remember what I said. And I'll be a little man with a walker one day, walking down Third Avenue, and you'll be maybe like 60 then, you'll be like, pastor, I remember. Thank you, I didn't know it back then I was young and foolish. <laughs> You'll see. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits, and you and I to come and harvest. Understand something. Our spiritual resurrection is a down payment to a future reality. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit and being born again in us a guarantee and a pledge of our inheritance. All our prayers, helping others, our Bible studies, our Sunday services, all our tears and our labors of love is a witness to our hearts that something has taken place in us. Every time we say no to sin, every time we say yes to loving people, every time we say say yes to helping people, every time we reach out with a glass of water and give it to somebody in the name of Christ, every time we go visit somebody in the name of Christ, that is a testimony that Christ has risen from the dead. Every time you sorrow for your sin, every time you have remorse, every time you ask God for forgiveness, every time you say, God, I don't want to just be forgiven, I want to be changed from the inside out, I can't take living like this anymore, is a sign of the resurrection. No one could talk you into such remorse. No one could talk you into such a desire to change. No one, no philosophy, no religion, no man could talk someone else into crying out to God to change him from the inside out. Only a resurrection could do that. And that's our spiritual resurrection. We see that Paul moves now beyond just a witness of the resurrection. He moves on from the logical breakdown of faith and the sad conclusions to what goes behind the scenes. We're going to speak about this in the upcoming week, where the resurrection is an integral part of restoring the whole universe. Back to its proper relationship to, to God. The resurrection, please understand this, is integral and it's the center of the new heaven and the new earth. You might not understand that now, but one day you will. So put on your thinking caps. We're going to speak about this. Let me close with these last remarks. There's a, a, a real hidden beauty of the faith here. A real hidden beauty of the faith. Paul, in his whole chapter on the resurrection, never appeals to emotions, subjective feelings, in his defense of the resurrection. And this is important. At the end of the day, the Christian's faith is not a, built on a movement of smoke and mirrors. It's not built on a horse and pony show by manipulating people with their primal fears and their religious brainwashing. No, 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 no. God speaks for himself. God backs up his word. But it's on God's very power and wisdom to restore life and restore this universe. It's logical. It's relevant. It meets the needs of the mind as much as the emotions. It alone has power to bring meaning out of this meaningful life. Reason to pursue a pure life of virtue in this moral wilderness. Otherwise, as Paul says, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We'll pick up this chapter next week. Let's take a moment here before John comes up. and with, with your heads bowed. Have you experienced spiritual life? Have you experienced the resurrection from the dead? Has Good Friday become real to you? Have you seen Christ in your heart dying for your personal sins? Do you want to have that salvation that only Christ can give, that hope that only Christ can give, the joy that only Christ can give, the direction that only Christ can give? Do you want that? You got to believe. You have to repent. You have to believe and follow Christ. Come follow me. And I just want to take a moment with every eye closed, really, let's be humble here. If you really want that new life, if you really want to give up the old life of sin and come and follow Christ and have that spiritual resurrection, I want you to raise your hand and pray with me. Don't be ashamed. It's only between you and God. That's all. It's only between you and God. That's all it is. It's between you and God. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer. Lord Jesus. I know I have sinned against you. I know it. But I know you love me and you died for me. I accept your salvation today. I repent of my sins and I accept you as my Lord and Savior today. Give me new life in Jesus' name. If you truly pray that prayer, something new is going to happen to you. And speak to me or John or someone else, okay? God bless you.